All right, y'all, let's go ahead and take our seats. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray this particular psalm. And it goes like this. It says, a light, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. And then there's just two, let's see, one, two, three, four lines down. The effects of that are you're not afraid of bad news. That's pretty amazing. So uh, let's pray that the light dawns in the darkness for the righteous. So if you're like, ah, man, I don't know if I measure up to that. If you're a Christian, you're righteous because of the righteousness of another. And so this applies to you. The light dawns for you. The light will dawn for you. So if you're in the darkness or you're coming out of the darkness or you will be in a darkness in the future because you will, the light will dawn for you. Period. Because he's gracious, merciful, and just. So let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you're the light and that some of us here, more than the watchman waits for the morning, are waiting for the dawn, are waiting for the morning, waiting for light. And so we want to pray to you and appeal to your faithfulness, which means that you do what you say. And we want to bring this passage to you that the light dawns in the darkness for the righteous, for your children, for those cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. So, O oh Lord, we're asking many of us for the light to dawn, and we do so now. And Lord, we ask for the light to dawn on behalf of those we love, on behalf of those we said we pray for, uh, on behalf of those who don't know you and need to know you. Uh, for you, Jesus, have accomplished everything that ever needed to be done in order to secure a righteous standing before God the Father. And so the light dawns in the darkness all over the place, constantly, consistently, down through church history, down through the ages. And so, Lord, right now we ask that your light would dawn in people's lives. And we're praying specifically for those people right now. And Lord, we ask that your light would continue to dawn in the darkness of where we're at in our culture, where the church is at all over the world, knowing that the church literally is an outpost of the kingdom of God. So it's in the realm of the darkness, and it actually is one of the major answers to this text, that the light dawns in the darkness in the church and so, Lord, would you strengthen your church? Would you encourage your church here in Waco? Would you encourage your church in the United States? Would you encourage your church all over the world that, that the church would be the light that dawns in the darkness? And the unbelievable effect of that would be this sense in which 
people can live in a dark place and not fear the darkness and not fear the bad news. That can live confidently and can live boldly like a lion. Can be lion-hearted and can go into places that other people will not go into because the light dawns in the darkness. And so, of course, we're going to go to the darkness, and of course, the church is going to go to the darkness because that's where the light needs to go. So, Lord, would we not be afraid of the darkness, your church, but would we actually run to it? Would we actually, like, where's the darkness? Oh, Lord, let me go to it. Let me take the light of the knowledge of you, Jesus, the light into the darkness. So, we're asking that your church would have that kind of courage today. That kind of power today, that kind of boldness today, that we would be people that take the light into the darkness, and we would do so to our friends and our families over Thanksgiving, and we would do so to our neighbors and wherever we're at and wherever you've placed us, whatever ball team we're on, whatever school we're at, whatever grade or class we're in, whoever's sitting next to us, whoever we work out with, whatever book clubs we're in, Lord, would you give us the courage and the boldness to make friends, have gospel conversations, to see the light dawn in the darkness wherever you have us. And so we pray for this church that it would happen and you would use us that way. We pray for your church all over Waco that you would use us that way. We pray for your church all over the world that you would use your church that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Okay, so uh, I debated what to do, because I know this is like kind of a, these next two weeks are kind of like off weeks. Everybody's out. Um, should I keep plowing ahead? And I decided to plow ahead this week in Philippians, but next week I think I might do something that whatever I read that week strikes me, and that's what I'm going to preach on. So it's to be determined what happens next Sunday. But this Sunday, it's right in the schedule. There's a story that Calvin was in Geneva, and he actually had to, he got in trouble with the city magistrates, and they booted him out of Geneva. And I think he was gone, like, for several years. <laughs> and when he came back, they brought him back, and he stepped into the pulpit. He was maybe, when he ended, he was in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 5. Well, he steps back seven years later and opens Isaiah 3, chapter, or verse 6. He just plowed right through the next exposition. So our tradition, our history, is expositional preaching. And what does that mean? It means you preach through the books of the Bible. Uh, one of the characteristics here is that we do Old Testament, New Testament, and we go back and forth. So we are doing a New Testament book now. We're coming to the end of it. So be praying what we do next. I might break the pattern. I don't know, because Acts is gripping me these days, the book of Acts. So we might do Acts in the spring, but I'm just not sure. So if you want something in the Old Testament done, you're going to have to pray really hard over these next couple of weeks to see if God will change my mind, okay? All right, so here's how we're going to begin. The Christian life can be complicated, amen? Amen. You don't know what to do, right? I mean... God seems so far away from me, you might think, and you're like, I don't know what to do. My relationship with God is stuck. It's not growing. I don't know what to do. I'm depressed. I don't know what to do. 
I can't change my same-sex desires. I don't know what to do. I'm lonely. I have no friends. I don't know what to do. I'm lonely. I'm single. I don't know what to do. I'm lonely. I'm married. I don't know what to do. My child is struggling. I don't know what to do. I don't know what God's will is for my life in this area and that area. I don't know what to do. The Christian life can be complicated. You don't know what to do. And then the Christian life can also be unnecessarily complicated. You don't know what to do. God seems so far away from me. Tradition A says you need to activate the Holy Spirit. So those of you that are wondering if I repented from last week, I'm back to myself this week. Tradition B says you need the right doctrine. Tradition C says you need to experience God this way. I don't know what to do. I'm lonely. I have no friends. Tradition D says you have unconfessed sin. Tradition E says you need to surrender all. Tradition F says you need the true church to be blessed to have friends. I don't know what to do. My child is struggling. Tradition G says you're not growing kids God's way. Tradition H says you need to apply these 100 biblical parenting principles. Tradition I says you need to let your child just find their own way. Tradition J says you need to let the state raise your child. Let social media raise your child. Let the school raise your child. I don't know what to do. Sometimes the Christian life can be unnecessarily complicated. You just don't know what to do. Do you not know what to do? Today's text is for you, if that's you. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. That's going to be very interesting when we get to that part. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. In other words, you are at a place in your relationship with God. He's basically saying, even if you don't agree with what he's saying, at least just hold where you are. Because eventually God will make it known to you. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when he shows up, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject, present tense, all things to himself. This is, well, we got one more. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. We thank you that you have given us your spirit that actually does the work of revealing and does the work of opening eyes and illuminates. Uh, it's the light that shines in the darkness. And so we need you to shine in our darkness this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So do you not know what to do? Paul gets that. Paul says in this text, I get that. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. He's saying, look, look, there's a lot missing, not obtained in my relationship with the Lord. He says, look, there's a lot missing. I'm not perfect in my Christian life. There's a lot missing that's not my own in everything that goes on in my life. There's a lot that I don't know what to do. But one thing I do. This is so powerful. And if you get it, it can radically not only change you, but radically empower you to live like boldly, courageously, and with energy, even if you're not doing well. Paul is saying, God seems so far away from me, but one thing I do. I'm stuck in my relationship with God. It's going nowhere. I'm not growing. But one thing I do. I struggle, I can't change, I can't change these same-sex desires, but one thing I do. Um, I'm lonely, I have no friends, but one thing I do. My child is struggling, but one thing I do. But one thing I do. It's amazing. So I watched this documentary. I've recommended it to a couple of you. It's an amazing documentary. It's called Just One Mile. <laughs> it's amazing, right? So it's not a marathon. It's not about running 26 miles. It's not a triathlon. It's not about swimming, biking, and what's the other one? Running. Yeah, that other one. It's not an ultra run. It's not, an ultra run has to be something over 26 miles. So it's not somewhere between 26 and 110. It's not like you run from seven hours. It could be somewhere from seven hours to 72 hours of running. Like people do ultrathons. I have a son that's like obsessed investigating them. I guess there's some guy named Goggins that's done a lot of them. 
There's not a, this is not about a CrossFit game of trying to find the fittest human on the planet, whether female or male, where you do these high-intensity workouts over a series of a couple of days to discover and put them all together of all kinds of body weight, lifting, running, biking, whatever, to find the fittest person on the planet. What is it? It's just one mile in a continuous loop, nonstop in the Tennessee mountains. And every time you do that continuous same loop, you incline 340 feet in elevation, and you have 20 minutes to complete the one loop. It's just one mile. There's no finish line. There's no end. There's no time limit of how many you do. You've got 20 minutes to do one. But there's no ending to this. It's just one mile. So the current champion is a guy named Chad. He's a former Navy SEAL, and he has an interesting strategy. And so you ask, well, what's his interesting strategy, Jeff? Well, in his own words, he says this, I hang in the back of the pack. Well, Chad, why do you hang in the back of the pack? Chad will tell you. He's very opinionated. Chad says, because you get to spend some time with every quitter. It's just one mile. So Chad, what's your strategy to win? Just one thing. I don't quit. I don't. But one thing I do, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind, this is a participle telling you about the one thing, so it's not the one thing. That's not the one thing. And straining forward what lies ahead, that's a participle number two, it's telling you about the one thing, not the one thing. Here it comes. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. I press on. I press on. The most popular used image of the Christian life in the Bible is running a race. So Paul, how do you run this race? How do you run this Christian life? What is this Christian life all about? How complex, how simple, what is it? How concrete is it? And he says, how do you run to win, Paul? How do we run to win? Just one thing. I don't quit. I press on. I press on. I press on. I don't. Paul, what's the one thing you do in life? What's the one thing you do when you don't know what to do? In your relationship with God, in your relationships with people, and trying to deal with the complicated stuff of just you, and everything that goes on in your life, what's the one thing you do? I press on to know Jesus and his salvation. 
I don't quit learning to build my messy life around Jesus and his salvation. I keep running the race of faith in Jesus and his salvation. I do one thing. Do you know do you not know what to do? Press on to know Jesus and his salvation. Don't quit learning to build your messy life and messy relationships and messy church and messy family and messy friendships and messy sports and messy music and messy whatever you do. Don't quit learning to build that around Jesus and his salvation. Keep running a gospel life. So some of you are thinking, oh my word, that's it. Seriously, that's it. That's the Christian life. It's that simple. Press on to know Jesus and the salvation. Oh, don't quit learning to build your messy life around Jesus and the salvation. Like, run the race of a gospel life. Well, I like tradition A. I want to activate the Holy Spirit. I like tradition E. I want to surrender all. I like tradition F. I want to be a part of the true church. I like tradition H. I want and obey and apply tons of biblical principles in my life. Now, I just want you to see, because this is not my response to you. This is Paul's response to you in verse 13. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Spiritual immaturity is thinking, I need to activate the Holy Spirit. I need to surrender all. I need biblical principles to apply to every area of my life. I need a true church. Now, some of you are mature. You think you are. I think I am. Because you get that it's all about a gospel life. So you do not want to think, I'm so glad I'm not like those other spiritual losers, right? Because watch what Paul says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Do you see what that means? When it says God will reveal it to you, that means that even if you have an inkling that the Christian life is about learning to build your messy life around Jesus, you got that because of grace. God revealed it to you. And then you're thinking, well, what about those that don't get it right now? What about those I love that don't get it right now? We're in a great place because it's by grace that they will eventually get it. Because that's what Paul says. He will reveal it to them too. So in one sense, there's this incredible thing that goes on in this Christian life. And Dr. Hannah used to say it so brilliantly in church history. He would study, he was an expert of church history, and he would say it's so fascinating to watch all the different traditions on how to live the Christian life. Because eventually, eventually, everyone gets to the grace of God. It takes a while. It might be a circuitous route. It might look like this over here for a while, and it might look like that over there for a while, and it might look like this over here for a while. But eventually... 
eventually Christians get it's about the grace of God. Press on to know Jesus and his salvation. Don't quit learning to build your messy life around Jesus and his salvation. Run the race of a gospel life. Now, some of you are thinking, but Jeff, I can't shake my past. Heck, I can't even shake my present. Look at verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you need to know that Paul had a lot that he needed to forget. Paul murdered Christians. Paul committed religious genocide on Christians. Paul killed people. I wonder what his nightmares were like. And he didn't have biblical counselors in his day. So there was bad stuff that he needed to forget. But there's also good stuff in his life that he needed to forget. Remember we saw that last week, that whole string of things that were incredible from he was of the right race, so he had the right righteousness by race. He had an extreme passion and commitment to holiness and purity, so he was like excelling and personal holiness and obedience and righteousness more than anyone in this room. He was a part of the right tribe. This was a tribe that excelled in having the first king. This was the tribe that had the son that was number one of all the sons of Israel. This was the one that had the son that was only born in the promised land. He had unbelievable family accomplishments. So he also had to forget this stuff. And then imagine now he's the, the apostle of all apostles. I mean, you're a Christian and I'm a Christian ultimately because he planted a church in the Gentile world. He was used by God more than any human being that has ever walked this earth. He had a relationship and a closeness with God closer than any human being that's ever lived. Brett Favre was once asked, do you all know who he is? Like he was a, he's a Hall of Fame quarterback. He was once asked, you know, how? How did you have so many, like, clutch throws, game-winning plays? You know, fourth and long, bottom of the quarter, it's all against you. They give the ball to you, and you take it down the field, and you win. Brett Favre. How do you do that? And he says, you have to have short-term memory. You've got to forget the last play, whether it was good or bad. If you don't, you will never make it as a high-quality, caliber, clutch NFL quarterback. That's the hardest thing to do, isn't it? Short-term memory. We hover over our failures, right? 
We fail and we hover over it. We can't get off of it. We just keep picking at it and looking at it, hoping to find something that wasn't failure. Thinking that if we think about it and hover over it, we're going to change it somehow. Make it better. Think it away. Think it better. And all we end up doing is saying, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I'm a failure. We can't shake our past. We can't forget what lies behind. And then we look at our successes like, and we hover over our successes because we look at our success and we're desperately trying to squeeze some scrap of righteousness out of that success, some scratch of self-worth out of that success, some scrap of justification of your very being out of that success. And when you get it, you're like, okay, I'm okay for now. But you can't lean forward and strain and strive and energetically go into the present no matter what it is because you feel so much pressure because you're under the pressure of performance. So how do you have a short-term memory? How do you forget what lies behind you and strain forward for whatever's coming your way in the future to live boldly and powerfully and energetically and courageously. No fear of failure, no hovering over your successes. You just love to lean into the wind and run. How do you live like that? Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize. What's the prize? Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize is Jesus and his salvation. He presses on in Jesus and his salvation. He doesn't quit in Jesus and his salvation. He keeps running in Jesus and his salvation. He's not pressing on in his performance. He's pressing on in Jesus' performance. He's not, not quitting by his willpower. He's pressing on in Jesus' willpower and performance and works and accomplishment. And so he's free to forget what's behind him, and he's free to lean into what's coming. What a way to live. Press on. Don't quit. Keep running. But one thing I do. Some of you are thinking, and this is the last one, but a person wants what they want. Right? I want to leave my husband. I want to act married with as many women as possible. I want a same sex relationship. I want to change my gender. I want to have power and control over others, politically, ideologically, economically, spiritually. Verse 18, for many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What that means is when you walk as an enemy of the cross of Christ, the cross is not your friend. And if the cross is not your friend, you're saying, I don't need the cross. I'm going to deal 
with my sin and with my life on my own, I don't need the cross. That's what's being said here. Uh, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Literally, their God is what they want. Their Savior is their desire, Paul is saying. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. So the question in this text is really, really important because I think it's one of the major questions of the culture today. How do we dethrone our desires? How do you do that? How do you dethrone the desire to want to leave your husband? How do you dethrone the desire to act married with as many women as possible? How do you dethrone the desire to not or to want a same-sex relationship? How do you dethrone the desire of wanting a different gender? How do you dethrone this desire to have power and control over other people, no matter what the field is and what the aspect is? How do we dethrone our desires? It's an unbelievable question for today. And the answer is, according to Paul, we don't. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is amazing because what he's saying is that our citizenship exists in heaven. It's almost like there's, our citizenship exists in someone else. And it's a future-oriented reality, but I want you to see what happens in this future-oriented reality because when this Savior shows up, watch what happens who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, everything revolves around this. When Jesus shows up, you change on the spot. When Jesus shows up, you change in your seat. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. Now watch what happens in this text. Who will transform our lowly bodies, verse 21, to be like his glorious body, but then all of a sudden he switches to the present tense. By the power that enables him now to even subject, present tense, right now, all things to himself. Do you see it? This is amazing. Let's just fill it in. By the power that enables him even to subject the desire to leave a spouse to himself. By the power that enables him even to subject sexual desires to himself. By the power that enables him even to subject same-sex desires to himself. By the power that even enables him to subject gender desires to himself, the power for control to himself. Jesus dethrones desires. There's a German theologian, a guy named Moltmann, and he does this interesting observation. Usually when you follow the life of Christ and you start seeing all of his miracles, everybody starts saying, oh, that shows his divinity, right? He's He's like showing how he's doing extra supernatural stuff. And what Moltmann started saying is like, no, Jesus is not doing supernatural stuff. Jesus is doing natural stuff. He's putting things back in their place. Amazing. Watch what he says. Miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. So when Jesus expels demons and heals sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and thereby is healing and restoring creative beings who are hurt and sick. So the lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. 
Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They're the only natural thing happening in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Our godlike desires are not natural. They're unnatural. So what do they need? They need to be brought to Jesus, who heals them and restores them and makes them natural again. Press on to know Jesus and his salvation. Don't quit learning to build your messy life and relationships around Jesus and his salvation. Keep running the race of a gospel life. Fight, he says in another, when he's about ready to leave. He's about ready to leave, and he says it to his best man, his right-hand man. He says, Timothy, fight the fight of faith. You know what that means? Fight the fight of trusting Jesus for the rest of your life. One thing, one thing I do. Let me pray.